So I'm aware that at this point in the election cycle, you did not show up at church or tune into church to, uh, to hear somebody talk about politics. Anything, right? Please, anything. Talk about money. Like, talk about how I should give money. Give me a devotion out of the book of Leviticus. Uh, talk for an hour about how, to, how important it is to parse Hebrew and Greek verbs. Anything. We're exhausted by the election. Now, I, I will acknowledge that perhaps one or two of you are sort of political junkies and you live for this moment and, wow, it only comes once every four years and you're following all the tweets and you're excited about whatever the latest polls are going to re reveal. So I get that there may be a few of you who are in a different space, but most of us are tired already. We're, we just want our lives back. We want this to end. We want a world that works. We, wanna, we want the commercials that are so acerbic and toxic to, to stop. We, we would like things to be dialed back. Most of us are exhausted, so um, you want to move on. I mean, and you're thinking, hasn't, <laughs> Mike, hasn't everything that could be said been said? like a hundred times and, and been tweeted and been debated. Move on. Okay, I, I get that. And I want to assure you that I'm not here to talk about the election. Uh, I want to assure you that uh, I'm not here to talk about politics. I'm not here to be a, a cultural analyst or a political commentator. Uh, I want to be here as a pastor. I want to say things to you today. My goal is to say things to you today that you would not hear on whatever end of the political spectrum radio program you might have been listening to. I want to stay in my lane, and my lane is as a pastor. But I think there are some important things for you to hear from the Word of God. So let me just back up and say, I started working on this sermon a year ago. Uh, back then, and, and for the record, this is when Bernie Sanders was way ahead of Joe Biden in the polls. This is, this is before COVID. This is before George Floyd. This is before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. This is before 2020 even began. I was working on this sermon because it, it, it seemed to me back then that this could be a particularly divisive, uh, fragile moment in our country and in our families and in churches. And so I was praying and reading and, and talking with people uh, about the sermons that I would be expected to give the first weekend in November before the election and the second weekend in November after the election. And, and indeed, I remember being uh, in social settings, being on a plane, finding out somebody else was a pastor and saying, what are you going to preach on in November? Like, is there a text that you have identified that you want to, uh, that you want to focus in on? What do you think people are going to need to hear from a pastor at that particular moment? So um, I have been thinking about this for a long time. This is actually the fifth presidential cycle uh, of my tenure as pastor. I've been here over 20 years, and so I've been through four presidential elections, and in the summer before the election, each of the previous four times, I would do a, a series uh, on politics. Not partisan politics, but I would do a series on uh, sort of first principles politi politics. 
These were based on the idea that politics matters. Politics at its most basic is how are we going to get along? Like how are we going to live together? And God obviously has some uh, significant things to say about how we should get along with other people. And in particular, he has things to say to his followers about how they are to get along with each other and how they are to get along with others around them. There's a sense in which the church is to be a political outpost of the kingdom of God. We're to be shaped not by an elephant or a donkey, but by a lamb. And that is to guide how we live and move through society. We are to be an earthly assembly of a heavenly reality, a foretaste of the true and eternal kingdom that is coming in which Jesus Christ is king. According to uh, 1 Peter 2.11, we are sojourners and exiles here, just passing through. God matters more than Caesar. The eternal matters more than the temporal. Our understanding of politics is to be shaped by God. Our understanding of God and of the Christian faith is not to be shaped by our politics. To, to use the terms that Augustine used, uh, the city of God is more important than the city of man. But the city of man matters. In Jeremiah 29, we're told that we are to work for the prosperity of the city in which God has placed us. Jesus calls us to be a city on a hill. We are told that we're not to run and hide to protect our own interests, but we are to be salt and light in the communities in which we live. We are not to be just another political interest group fighting for our own rights. We are to be those who are a force for good. We are to be those who are there representing the poor. We are to be those who have the values of Christ and are representing those in the public sphere. There's much more to life we are called to than politics, but the word church, ecclesia, that was, this, is, this is a term Jesus reached back into Greek philosophy to pull out. It was a political term. It described a, a political entity. There is a sense in which the church is to be a political outpost for the kingdom of God. So over the last 20 years, I have given sermons on, again, what I consider to be sort of first principles. We've looked in Romans 13 to, about the role of government. I've talked about uh, how, we are to, how we are to think about civil authorities. I've talked about the, the value and importance of just laws and the privilege of voting. Uh, I gave a sermon called, Is Jesus a Democrat or a Republican? Uh, I've talked about when and where civil disobedience is a good thing. Uh, I have called and reminded you, first Timothy 2, that we are to pray for our leaders and those in authority over us. Uh, in, in most, I hope in all of those uh, sermons, they were not partisan. I, I think, I sort of kept score for a while, that I have been um, accused of being a liberal socialist and I have been accused of being a right-wing ideologue about in equal numbers. Um, and I am not here. Again, my job is not to represent 
the elephant or the donkey, it's to represent the lamb. And it's not, and please hear this, it's not to find the middle point between the elephant and the donkey. That's not the assignment. It is to identify with Jesus Christ, his vision, his values, his call. So uh, I think that this is challenging uh, to do because there are, there are issues that are important to some people that are not as important as they are to others. There's some churches that line up around uh, some issues. Tim Keller framed it this way. He said, when you look at the early church, the Bible in the early church, you see that uh, Christians should be committed to racial justice in the poor. Also, we have an understanding that sex is only for marriage and for the nurturing of the family. Some of those are issues that liberal churches seem, seem to be more energized by. Some of those are issues that conservative churches are more energized by. And I would say, I, I think we are to be those who are uh, taking our marching orders from the Bible and all of these things matter. So, I understand that um, the people whose views are shaped mostly by a political party are going to be frustrated by what I have to say today. And yes, I know that I'm water skiing over so much. There are all kinds of questions and issues that I just do not have time to get into. There are, there are disagreements that are not uh, as much political as they are policy. So uh, there are Christians who, well, Christians would understand that as a Christ follower, we are called to have a particular uh, uh, focus on the poor and oppressed, the widow and the orphan, right? We've, we've got to focus there. Some uh, Christians would see the best way to do this is to raise taxes to have government programs that are focused in that. Other Christians would say, no, that doesn't work. Government is very inefficient. We need more free market and church-driven solutions to those problems. So, so there, there's just all kinds of ways that we can be frustrated and divided. I get all this. I get that this is a, this is a tense, complicated, divisive moment, which means, as I said, I'm likely to make just about everybody mad today. That's not my goal. Um, I will leave some things unsaid that you wish I had said. I will say things that you wish I hadn't said. But um, as your pastor, I believe there are at least four things that I want to be sure that you hear today. So, um, number one, do not forget. Your primary focus is to be on Jesus. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. The most important thing that is going to happen in your life on Tuesday is not who you vote for. It's who you decide to honor as king. The most important thing that will happen in your life on Tuesday is not who you vote for, but who you choose to honor as king. There's only one person qualified to be lord of your life, and he is not running on either ticket. As Christ followers, we are not to be primarily defined. Our hope is not fundamentally contingent upon a political event, an election outcome, or a judicial nomination. As Charles Colson said, the kingdom of God will never arrive on Air Force One. In this passage in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, For the Lord is our judge, judicial. The Lord is our lawgiver, legislative. <laughs> the Lord is our king, executive. It is he who will save us. In other words, our hope is not to be in uh, political power 
And the moment you let politics shape and define your life, the more you let, the, the moment you let politics or, or, the, or, or your political understanding shape the judicial, legislative, or executive aspects of your life, then you are already in trouble. You've created an idol which will twist and contort you. Our hope is never to be in political power. It is to be in Jesus Christ. Do not be one of those who makes secondary issues your primary passion. And some are. Do not be one of those who is making secondary issues your primary passion. And some of you are. Whoever you honor as king will be most important on Tuesday. Point number two, do not forget, we are to be people of hope. So um, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul writes about faith, hope, and love. Now, he will go on to note that love is the most important, but hope <laughs> is hanging out with uh, love and faith. And that's pretty impressive company. Hope is important. We are to be people of hope. But our hope is not to be tied to the results of the election. And please understand this. Hope is also not optimism. Hope and optimism are two different things. Optimism is looking at trends and thinking that the trends are going in the direction that you want them to go. Hope is based not on a political candidate, not on an election outcome, not on a judicial appointment. Hope, your hope is to be based on a risen Lord, on an empty tomb, on forgiveness of sins, on eternal life. That is what is to shape you. That is what is to give you hope and encouragement. 1 Peter 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. We are to be people of hope. Whatever is announced on Tuesday night, or I guess uh, increasingly it looks like not Tuesday night, maybe uh, 10 days from now, whenever the election is decided. But whatever is announced on Tuesday night is not supposed to fundamentally change your disposition. Your hope, your bearing is to be grounded in Jesus Christ and the promises that he has given. Number three, do not forget, you are called to love your neighbor. Jesus says in Matthew 22, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So do not forget um, that you are to love your neighbor. And this translates into you are to vote. Hear this, a little disruptive I suspect. You are to vote for the best for the other person. We are, to, we are to shape our lives for the benefit of others. We are to live and think and vote for the common good. 
Now, I'm a fan of the church, obviously. Uh, I work at a church. I'm investing my life in a church. I think there's nothing like it. It's a force for good and the common good in ways that, uh, that nothing else can rival. I, I really believe it. Now, the church is flawed, deeply flawed. It's made lots of mistakes over the years. Uh, I think one of the mistakes recently, and by recently, I mean the last 40 years, I think one of the mistakes the church has made recently is that Christians have come to be viewed as just another political block that votes for its best interest. Instead of being seen as a group that wants the best for others, especially the poor and the oppressed, the widow and the orphan, the church is seen instead as being uh, a, a group that is trying to get its way and trying to force its views on others. Now, this is complicated. This is very complicated. I, I believe that the morals that have been set down by God that we often try to see encoded in moral principles and laws are for the best. I don't believe in the end that we break God's laws as much as we break ourselves against God's laws. I think there is a good, there's great value in good legislation because it shapes societies. I believe that, that it is, it can be loving to be an advocate for good policy and good government. I think our country is, furthermore, is making some big and costly mistakes right now that, that will not work. I want to be clear about all that. But I do think that one of the things that we have got to do is be viewed as people who are looking out for others. So, again, hear me. Some of you want to hear me say that what we need most of all in this country is revival. And I would say, yes, I pray for revival. I, just, I don't just want revival, though. I want reformation. I just don't want people to, to, to come to faith. I want people to grow in faith and to grow in character. And so I want to help create that kind of society. And I believe that the church is absolutely essential for it. I, I think that, that uh, I, I subscribe in part to this, this view that is put forth by Charles Malik, the former uh, Lebanese scholar and, and uh, a statesman. He was at the UN. Malik said that society is made up of seven institutions, the family, church, state, government, business, education, and the arts. I think it's easy when you look at, the, when you look at society that way to understand that we have to see we have to see the church be the church. We have to see the church grow. We have to see the church move in, in the direction that God has called us to move if any of these other groups have a chance. We cannot, we cannot tax a society enough to pay for people to provide love and care for children that a family will provide for free. We cannot tax a society enough to pay for enough police to keep the laws or guarantee that the police get the training that they need so that they will be wise in the execution of the power that they have. If you read our founders, you know that they say this over and over and over again. They were building a government that would only work for, in their terms, religious people. People who had Judeo-Christian values. A new book came out several months ago by, um, uh, by the, the chief rabbi in England, uh, Jonathan Sachs. It's a book called Morality. And in Morality, he makes the argument, he says, that, uh, that the West, so the United States and, and other Western countries, are built on three piers. 
uh, democracy, free market capitalism, and consensual morality. And so he's writing as a Jew, but he, he says consensual morality. So he's saying we've got we've to have some virtue. And if there is no virtue, then uh, democracy and free market capitalism are not going to work. I think, uh, I've showed you this before, this is uh, the golden triangle that says faith, we need faith in order to have freedom, in order to have virtue. In order to have faith, we've got to have virtue. In order to have freedom, we've got to have faith. This, this works together. You take faith out, you're going to lose virtue, you're going to lose freedom. I believe these things to be true. Societal breakdown cannot be fixed with political power and government funding. I think the church is critical for Western society to last. And I think that if we will, if we will look at this, we will understand that we are increasingly a cut flower society in which the, the beauty that we see around us is based on uh, previous ethics and values. And we are getting away from those things. So I understand that, uh, that as Christians, we need to work for uh, a society that is shaped by the way God has shaped things. But I also think that as a Christian, that means we have got to be people who are known for looking out and voting for the best of others. So I want to say to you, as you are thinking about your vote, love your neighbor. And by the way, it's not just that we're called to love our neighbor. You are called, I am called, to love our enemy. Now, I wouldn't use the word enemy to describe the person that is going to vote for the other candidate. Right? I think I would be more comfortable using the term rival. Uh, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't say that you are to love your rival. He says you're to love your enemy, so I'm going to stay with enemies. And I'm going to say we are to be the kind of people who treat our enemies as if they're friends. So I, I, I keep making this point because forever when I thought love my enemy, what's the most loving thing I could do for my enemy? Well, I could get my enemy to think like I do. <laughs> I could get my enemy to, to place their faith in Christ. I could get my enemy uh, to, to, to do what I'm, to think like me. I mean, there's a, I can easily talk myself into that and there's, there's some truth to that. But I don't think that's what we're being told here. I think there's a tendency to want to change our enemies into friends so they'll vote like we vote. And that's not what we're getting called to here. We're being called to be people who treat our enemies as if they are our friends. A week or so ago in the Friday update that I put out, I, I, um, I, I spoke about this a little bit. I said, I wrote this. Stop demonizing, start praying. The left and right are not simply disagreeing, they're vilifying. Don't go there. We are called to love our enemies, and I'm pretty sure that includes not ascribing evil intentions to their political positions. We must hold their humanity in mind as we extend to them the same grace we want and require. So this means that we will be humble. This means that we will be civil. Uh, there's way too much demonizing going on. Point number four. Do not forget... We are called to unity. I'm speaking here now about the church, not about the country. Do not forget, we've been called, those of us who love Christ, we've been called to focus on who is king, who is Lord in our life, not who we're voting for. 
We are uh, called to be people of hope. Uh, we are called to be people who love our neighbor and our enemy. And now, point number four, we are called to unity. We are called to love and get along with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We are expected, indeed, we are commanded to get along. That means you're expected to remain in a relationship with the clueless idiot sitting next to you at church, the person who's voting for the other ticket. As I noted earlier, uh, I did a sermon some years ago called Is Jesus a Democrat or a Republican? And in that sermon, I pointed out that uh, there are a lot of issues around which the goal is agreed upon. We want to help the, the poor. We, we've got to figure out a way to, you know, to, to raise up the poor. And some say, well, it's through government funding, and some say it's not. And so there's a disagreement there. That, that's, that's part of the ways that, that we might disagree. In the church, there's also often a disagreement over how we're going to prioritize the many different things that we have been called to. So um, my point here is that there are a, a variety of different ways that we might not get along. But we are called to unity. We are called to hold things together. The things that unite us, our identity in Christ, should be greater than the things that divide us. If you, read the, uh, if you read church growth literature, it will say things like, you should start a church with a certain age demographic in mind. Pick young, pick old, pick whatever you want to pick, just pick one and focus on that. And, and we have said, no, we, we actually think the church is supposed to be a multi-generational community. It's harder now that we're living longer. We sometimes have four generations we're trying to hold together. But, but there may be easier ways to do church than we're doing it. But we've said, no, we, we think we're supposed, to, we're supposed to go for multi-generations. The church growth information says, look, you should pick an ethnic group and go after that and, and just adopt the homogeneity principle. And we say, well, no, we can't do that. That's not what we get called to. That's not what we see being reconciled Jew and Greek. It's, it's not what we see described in the book of Acts. It's not what we see in, in, in the vision of heaven that we read about in Revelation chapter 7. So, no, we're not going to do that. There's church growth literature says, pick a socioeconomic slice and focus there. And we say, not on your life. Like, we can't do that. That's not the church. The church growth information says... Decide whether you're going to be a red church or a blue church, but you can't be a purple church. And we say, uh, look, the goal isn't to be a purple church. Again, the goal isn't to say, we got people here and here, we're going to meet in the middle. No, the goal is to be a church that is following Christ. Who wants to be a red church or a, or a blue church? No, we are to be defined not by the elephant or the donkey. We're to be defined by the lamb that was slain and is going to be ultimately victorious. And that means that what unites us has got to be more defining for us than what divides us. And if Jesus could hold together a small group in which you have a tax collector, so this is a Jew who sold out his fellow Jews 
to work for the Romans in order to extort as much money out of his, you know, brothers and sisters and cousins and parents. If Jesus can hold together a small group that's got the, the traitorous tax collector and the zealot, who's basically a guerrilla trying to overthrow the Romans, right? So far ends of the political spectrum. If he can hold those two together in a small group, your small group and your church should be able to bridge whatever political divides are there. So, as always, there are ways that we can uh, not get along. We can fight over all kinds of things. We can fight over worship styles. We can fight over schooling. Should it be public or homeschooling or Christian schooling? We can fight over Cubs and White Sox. There's all kinds of things that we can fight over. Understand we are called to unity. (laughs) We're called to unity. In my uh, devotional practices the last six months, uh, I shared this before, I I find I got to shake things up in terms of what I do. And so... Six months ago, I started uh, this new drill in which I'm writing out by hand. I'm writing out 10 verses uh, every morning. And I do this out of the Gospels. And I have recently been in John 17, which is the, the prayer of Jesus. It's, it's ultimately the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we think of as the Lord's Prayer is not a prayer he would have prayed. We get to listen in on, on, on Jesus praying to God the Father in John 17. And what he prays for is the unity of the church. Make them one, Father, even as you and I are one. We are called to unity. Well, there is so much more uh, that I could say, uh, but you're going to have to come back uh, next week. Uh, Let me pause here and say, if you want to send me an email and tell me that I am an idiot, um, send it to the campus pastor. I'm sure they will agree with you. Uh, If you have questions about what I'm saying, as always, you know, you can go to the website. There, the sermon, there's a a video, there's an audio, and there's a manuscript. Some of you frantically take notes on sermons. God bless you. You can continue to take notes on sermons. Uh, Basically, a word, word manuscript of my sermons are always online. So you can go there. Um... There's more than I want to say, but, but next week, I want, to, I want to give you one big idea, one big thing that I think you need to focus on going forward, and this will come after the election or uh, after the election, but perhaps not after the election results. That doesn't really matter. So uh, I want to say, please, this week, vote. It is a privilege uh, and a responsibility. Please vote. Secondly, be back next week or tune in next week if you're online. Uh, for the second part of this. And, uh, and please, pray for the people who win election, whoever they are. So we're called to this, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. We are called to pray for those in authority over us. So please, pray for them even now. And do not forget, <laughs> there's the tagline of the sermon, do not forget, Our primary focus is to be on Jesus. It's who is king, not who is president that matters most. Do not forget, we are to be people of hope. Do not forget, you are to love your neighbor and even your enemy. And do not forget, we are called to unity. Heavenly Father, guide and direct us. Protect us. We thank you for this country. It has been uh, such a blessing uh, around the world. And we enjoy so many privileges 
uh, being here. Pray for its protection. Guide and direct our leaders, direct our country. Help us as Christians to be what you've called us to be, salt and light, a light, a city on a hill. Help us to be uh, people who love our neighbors, love our enemies, people of hope who help navigate this moment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I have an opportunity today, um, and I appreciate the way the election landed on the first Sunday of the month so that I'm not just giving a political talk. Uh, we get to focus again on Jesus King. And there's nothing that, that sort of brings us to that point quite as specifically as coming to the Lord's table, which is an open table at Christ Church. Uh, it is open to anyone for whom Jesus is your Savior and Lord, provided you're willing to, to uh, prayerfully come before him and to seek him and you, you don't come to this table casually or flippantly. Uh, but we have a chance now to uh, come to this table to remind ourselves of how desperately we need a Savior. Not just an example, not an elected official. <laughs> we need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. And so on that last supper, something that, that looked back uh, in time to the Passover. It, it, it will also look forward uh, to, uh, to Revelation, or to, into heaven and the banquet that is, that is coming in Revelation 19. On that Last Supper, Jesus Christ took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this bread is my body given for you. Take and eat. And in a similar manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Drink all of it. The Apostle Paul, who was not there, adds, um, not at the Last Supper, but he adds as he writes this up in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, he says, as often as we eat of this bread or drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Be encouraged today because of who Jesus is and what he's done and what is secure in Christ. Be people of hope this week. Have a good week.